0: Welcome to Real World Talk, a podcast that brings together healthcare leaders to discuss the importance of real-world data in accelerating drug development and improving cancer care. Real World Talk is brought to you by CODA, a company that combines oncology expertise with advanced technology and analytics to create clarity from fragmented and often inaccessible real-world data. In today's episode, I'm very excited to have Michelle Hoyseth, who is Chief Data Officer at ParExcel, a global CRO. Uh, Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time to join us on our podcast today. So it's terrific to be with you today. It's
1: This topic is near and dear to my heart, and I feel so passionately about the opportunity that's in front of us as an industry to really retool The way that we execute in clinical development and really develop therapies faster at a lower cost, deliver them better to patients. And so I feel like we're in an incredibly exciting time for change that we haven't really seen for 15 years, maybe. And so excited to dig into this topic. What can RWD do for us in
0: ClinDev? Yeah, it really is such an exciting topic, and you have such a unique perspective from your role as chief data officer, right? You see the full gamut of data from what is traditionally used in RCT to the way that real world data is used. And I think we've seen a lot of evolution from real world data simply being used in the post-marketing space to now really playing an important role in clinical development. To start, can we talk a bit about the value that real world data brings to the clin dev side? And why is it today that it's becoming so important? And we really need to think about how do we leverage that in our clinical development process.
1: I think, Zoe, the first thing that we need to do is take a step back and really take account of the fact that real-world data has the potential to play a role throughout the clinical development continuum. So you think about the way that we use data up front now to think strategically about how we will develop a therapy or the design of a particular protocol through to uh, now being able to use healthcare and other data as a source of patient-level data to support analysis, through to changes in the regulatory environment and acceptance of RWE, wanting to understand how therapies are really behaving in the prescribing environment, and then finally into the way we think about pharmacovigilance and safety surveillance and life cycle management of compounds. RWD is showing up in all of those places across the the development continuum. And so one of the things that we've done as we appreciated that is we tried to centralize our capabilities so that we can deliver data more effectively to the intended purpose and understand, for example, the differences between regulated uses of RWD and non-regulated uses and just try to really foster the learnings in this new space for us and leverage the experience of groups like epidemiology and health economics that have had more experience with data into the clinical development end of the spectrum, really combine those learnings and see if we can gain some traction and go a little faster in this space.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I think you had referenced the regulatory side of using world world data, right? Some of these uses are going to be regulatory track and involve those regulators, such as the FDA or the EMA, and then others do not. And I think in the past, when I think about what has held people back from using world world data in the regulatory path, I think some in the industry, it used to be, oh, just I'm not sure if this is really well accepted by the regulatory bodies. But I think we've seen that change a lot, mm-hmm. actually, in the past decade is that really still a barrier? And if that's not the barrier, then what is, right, for adoption of real-world data in these use cases?
1: Yeah, there have been a number of barriers to the adoption of RWD and clinical development and regulated uses. And they have spanned from things like cost and budget to uncertainty about the reliability of the data, to risk aversion coming from uncertainty of the regulatory acceptance of that as a data source. It's really spanned an array of issues. And if I speak to risk aversion, regarding risk aversion around whether data would be accepted by a regulatory body, the last two years have been remarkable We've got the emergence of published guidelines. You've got Dr. Abernathy holding weekly lab meetings that are talking about the acceptance of RWE. It's showing up in our related industry symposia and forums, so we're able to think together as an industry about how do you apply the principle of a GXP requirement to a new data flow, a new data source, right? Our existing SOPs don't work well in that environment. And it's really, it is our job to take the spirit of those requirements and pragmatically apply them to a new environment so we can feel good that the data that we're bringing is suitable for its intended analysis, does have the integrity it needs to have for the intended analysis. And I think the volume that has been turned up by our regulatory bodies and thinking through that has really helped us know where to place our bets, right? And has really helped us where to go more boldly, so to speak. And then, of course, with COVID, what's the joke? Who do you (laughs) ascribe your digital transformation to? Is it your CEO, your CTO, or COVID? And it's COVID, right? It's It's forcing our hands in
0: a lot of these situations.
1: Or is. In that environment, we've got a lot of tolerance to try new methods, and it's forcing us to figure out things about plumbing and traceability matrices and data lineage, and we don't have another choice. So I think the last two years in particularly have been years of remarkable change, helping us step forward with respect to the regulatory barriers to use, not that they were ever intentional barriers, right?
0: It's a new field, I think, for the clinical development side. It is less new for post marketing uses. Um, but I think that the risk aversion that you talk about, it's very real. And I think it's very understandable as well. For when you conduct a study, you want to make sure that it is statistically sound, that it actually gets you an accurate view of how that particular drug performs, whether it's in safety or efficacy, because ultimately, it's going to patients like that. The risk there is very real. But I think fit for purpose is one of those things that will help mitigate that risk, making sure that the data that you are using is properly curated and properly matched for the purpose that you're using it for. In your experience, how does one find fit for purpose in data as a way to help mitigate against these risks that some people and some companies might be afraid might emerge from using real-world data? Finding fit for purpose data, the most fit
1: for purpose data. There's not a single path to Rome, so to speak. And what Mm -hmm. we're finding is often the nature of the validation or the nature of the data sets that we're considering can vary pretty substantially from therapy area to therapy area. So you have to really be very practical in your thinking, know clearly how you're going to use the data upfront, which in a minute, let's get into how we think about protocol designs and planning. But I think it matters very much in this environment. If we really want to use real world data to change the way we execute a protocol or a piece of research, it really matters to be data agnostic. No single data set serves. That still holds true. Back to our little humorous comment about COVID, right? One of the other positive results from trying to organize as a society around COVID and respond to COVID are changes on the healthcare provider side around data. So the ONC rules, the CMS rules, knowing that we're gonna settle in on FHIR 4.0 as our API interface, that is really helping us in the life science side of things have better continuity, better harmonization, and how we're gonna access healthcare data to replace some of the old ways with collected data. Being data agnostic matters. Being clear about how you're gonna use the data matters. The third thing that shows up is who evaluates and and validates the suitability of a data set looks different. So in traditional randomized clinical trials, a lot of these design considerations are the accountabilities of the MDs and the statisticians. They're responsible for the integrity and the reliability of the result. When we're considering real-world data, the medics and the statisticians remain paramount. But you have epidemiologists showing up and you have data scientists showing up and other types of expertise that really have to be present to say, yes, I can take data from this data asset to build a patient cohort for analysis. This data asset is not suitable, whether it's right. the missingness or the context in which the data are collected or whatever it might be.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think that's so important. And I like that phrase that you used about being data agnostic and how it's no single data source will serve all purposes. I think even possibly no single data source sometimes even fulfills the full needs of a single purpose. And I think it is really unique. I know from the CODA side. We are a data vendor and a data curator, but we publish all the time with our peers and other data vendors because we know how important it is to pull our data, to work together, to define the standards of this industry. And so that when a pharmaceutical company or a biotech company has a need, we have a uniform, not a uniform perspective, but we are on the same page in terms of how we structure this data, right? How can we make this more interoperable so that we are more than the sum of our parts? We are more than the sum of each individual record or data asset that we have. um, So we can really make a a bigger impact, I think, when you put them all together. Exactly.
1: And then, The technologies are coming to a point where we really do have the ability to deliver interoperability that we didn't have two years ago, certainly not five years ago. The big healthcare data headline has been around for a long time now, and we've all seen the potential, and we struggled to deliver on the promise, so to speak, of it. And I think for a long time, there was opacity in the data There was just a lot of variability and insufficient access to data, the type of data you need, deeper data. But the enabling technologies weren't there. And I really feel like that's changing.
0: Yeah, I think it's a big help. I think it's a big enabler. I want to go back to a topic that you had brought up, which is protocol design. Um, Very complex, big topic to tackle. And everything starts really with the protocol design, right? Before you Mm -hmm. get into thinking about which data vendor should you use, how much power you need in terms of volume, before you get into any of those kinds of decisions, it all goes back to protocol design. And just from the very beginning, what kinds of designs are you considering for a particular study? And those decisions are so key. And so I wanted to ask, what do you see in terms of The way that people think about protocol design, is that changing now? Are they considering more alternative designs to a traditional RCT, where maybe they'll do a single arm with a comparative cohort? How has that thinking evolved? And then also, what is the role of a company such as ParXL in helping to guide this thinking?
1: It's a really big deal, Zoe. And it's the very first point of failure to be honest. And it's unfortunately still commonly the first point of failure because I think so many of us in this space come from traditional clinical research backgrounds. We understand what our study designs have looked like. We tend to start from the most recent study that we did and that indication and that patient population with that compound, whatever it might be. And we begin to step off of what was done before. And that habit, results in a very traditionally designed protocol coming forward to a a clinical development and planning team and with the request to use real-world data. If we think that we're going to use a new source of data in the same old protocol, we will have done nothing to shorten the development times, to lower the cost to develop. So really what we need to flip or do a better job flipping is to say, In this particular indication, there is a risk of slow enrollment in the control arm. There's an ethical issue, perhaps, around the control arm. We know there's a need for longer-term safety surveillance, whatever it might be that is unique to that population that would make real-world data a valid source of patient data for analysis that offers a benefit over collecting it via EDC, right? Whatever that is, let that come forward first. Think about your data sources, what has to be in them, and let that inform the study design instead of taking the same old protocol and trying to jam the data backwards into it. That's where we have to come to in our thinking. Our standard processes and the way we think about clinical study design don't tee that up very well today. We have to rethink from there.
0: So how do we get there? How do we get there? We need to bring different players into the fold. You had mentioned, right, with real-world data, there becomes epidemiologists really matter, data scientists really matter. Is it that we just need to make sure we have the right people at the table? Are there other things that we need to be doing in terms of the planning for protocol design that will enable us to be at that point where we can think about these other approaches? Because I think what you said is really important and we need to get to that place. But I think that it's sometimes it's still a little bit intangible. What are the concrete steps that as a drug developer, I can take in order to arrive at that place?
1: To me, it's a conversation that we need to have as we're deciding how to develop particular medicine or medical device across an array of indications. So it's a consideration that we need to take up just as though we might take up whether we're going to do a precision medicine, take a precision medicine approach or a broad class development approach, or should we do an accelerated pathway? Can we qualify for accelerated pathway approval? We make all these development decisions early on as we're contemplating our options. What's best for patients? What's best for the development of this product? What do patients need? That's the place where we need to start first contemplating our designs. I don't want to dumb it down and say there's some sort of checklist of (laughs) development considerations, but it
0: does need to be built in more systematically like we consider those other kinds of options. That makes a lot of sense. I I think it's the process of making this standardized Right, Mm -hmm. making this part of the routine that whenever the set of circumstances might arise that you had mentioned, for example, if it's a particularly rare population, or if we know that there's already a really strong signal to then automatically say, yes, then it's part of our standard protocol that the next couple of steps that we will consider these kinds of designs. Is it feasible? Is it not feasible? And How do we act on that? So I think that's incredibly important to do that. Do you think we're set up in the way that the ecosystem currently is where we have CROs who have a wealth of expertise from running studies across different companies, across different therapeutic areas, and you can bring all the different perspectives together and really figure out what the best practices are? So there are CROs, then there are sponsors, who typically do a mix of in-house and outsourced uh, research. And then we have data vendors separately. Then we've got the FDA, right? The way that the ecosystem is set up right now, do you think it's conducive, right, to us using more real-world data in clinical development? Are there ways that we can structure this better? Are there ways that we can collaborate better to make this happen?
1: It's a big, heavy yes, because
0: it's such a complex
1: environment as we're thinking about all the different players and in the way that we interact the points of interaction today in our standard way of working. And it's complex in that we have a number of different industry initiatives going on around real world data that aren't necessarily coordinated or talking together. And that's also not helpful because if you're a sponsor in Transcelerate, versus whether you're part of ACRO in the FDA TMAP initiatives, the conversations that are being had are unquestionably similar, but not coordinated. So we're not mm-hmm. at a good place to step forward as an industry and rethink the way that we interact around this topic. Because it, again, it's coming back to the planning and design is the potential first point of failure. And then the data providers the data partners you guys know your data intimately if we're going to make a decision around whether to build a synthetic control arm from your data you got to be at the table we have to be debating the validity of the data the suitability of the data Mm -hmm. and how that data is transformed into the analysis data set all sorts of mechanical things to be sure that we're clear on who touched the data what when where how what they did to it Being able to peel the onion and understand the standard of care that was in play that generated that data set. Is it generalizable, for example? We we have this all the time right now in the COVID data sets, don't we? It has to be that perspective and the ability to sit and think through that and evaluate it openly is essential. I think, particularly to the uses of data in the regulated use cases. In the unregulated use cases, we can probably deal just fine with thinner, broader data sets, but that's not what we're talking about here. And yes, as a CRO, we are exposed to study execution across potentially a, a broader number of studies in a certain therapy area. We're not always brought in at the design stage, though. So Mm -hmm. our ability to catalyze this discussion isn't always soon enough, right? It tends to be soon enough in our strategic partnerships. It tends to be soon enough in, say, with small emerging biotech customers who are really leaning on their CRO partner as a development partner. But that middle tier, you're often still getting an RFP with the protocol design. And if you see an opportunity to apply data to the benefit of the study, you're often presenting it as an alternative approach at that point, and it would require a lot of unwinding of other decisions that have already been made potentially. That's a much clunkier dynamic and and still one that's very real and present in our industry.
0: Yeah, I think going back to the design, it's, of course, it takes so much planning, right? It happens so early on. I remember when I first came into the pharma industry I knew that clinical development took a long time, but it really blew my mind how early on the protocol is finalized and how early on the design conversations happen. And and I agree. I think CODA also probably doesn't have as many conversations as we should that early on in the process. I think with partners who we're very established with, sometimes that happens, but typically it is more, hey, this is the cohort that we need. Do you have the data to support this? And of course we were happy to support at that level. but I think that there are certainly efficiencies to be gained if all of us would come to the table early on, talk through what the design looks like and be very prepared, I think, in that way. So that's an area that I think as a whole, everyone in this industry has a responsibility to you know, push for that earlier collaboration and push for that earlier communication of here's what our data is capable of. You're right. We know our data inside out. We can tell you the things that our data can do and we can tell you the things that our data cannot do. And I think knowing those, both the potential as well as the limitations can really help inform executing on a design and executing on a protocol that will go smoothly. And I think it comes down to trust. We
1: as patients and The loved ones of patients want the safest, most efficacious therapies available. So we need to be able to trust the process, which means that the sponsors and manufacturers and the CROs and the data providers, we all have an obligation. We all have an obligation to stand up the best operational model that we can, that addresses the needs of our patients, that we could hand over heart, say the data set that was synthesized to support this safety determination, to support this efficacy assessment, had the appropriate integrity and applicability and integrity to support the analysis. That's on us, right? We're the ones who understand why we've come to the way that we develop clinical data sets now, what we trust about them and what we don't. And as we move into leveraging new sources of data, it's on us to be able to look any patient in the eye and say, We've done the best job we can here. We stand behind this result and the analysis. And that's us all coming to the table together.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it all comes back to that. I think that, firstly, is the reason that most of us are in this field to begin with is that we want to be able to bring these new drugs to market faster for those unmet needs and for those patients that need these therapies. And I agree, it all just comes down to, in the end of the day, you or I, just as citizens, as patients, do we trust this? Do we feel comfortable that this clinical trial was done with the utmost power, with the utmost care, with the utmost rigor, to ensure that what is coming out of that and the results coming out of that are informing good decisions that maximize benefit for patients. So I think that ultimately is so important. And I am glad that through this podcast as one example, but in a lot of other ways that this conversation is getting louder. I think the conversation is getting louder. I think it is incredibly important to talk about this, both the benefits as well as the risks both how we've made progress in this area, as well as places that we still have challenges, and to be highly transparent as we work through this process with everyone, whether it is people who are involved directly in terms of CROs, pharma companies, or data vendors, but as well as ultimately with patients as well, so that they understand what is the thinking behind this, right? How is this evolving? Why is it evolving in this way? And how is this actually better for me in the end? Because there's no reason to do anything if it's not going to be better for the patient in the end.
1: And I think you just hit on it with the transparency word. So much of trust is about transparency, right? Having transparency. And that's where I think that we need to operate differently as providers in the life science industry, as operators in the life science industry, we aren't completely revealing or transparent because we're concerned about some sort of competitive something. I don't want something about my intellectual property getting out there, putting me at a competitive disadvantage. I need to maintain my window of competitive advantage, whatever it is. And at this particular point in time, and as we move forward and try to, as I said, retool the way that we pursue clinical development, we have to be More transparent. There's not a whole lot that is actually probably competitively differentiating, right? In this. And what's more important is that we, through our transparency with one another, can agree around process requirements, agree around validation thresholds, agree around changes to the way that we work not as a single organization for which no single organization is going to pierce through all this, but as an industry. So we begin to have a shared set of expectations about how we should operate in this space and really create the change that is available to us.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I think that's a really good summary of the takeaway from this, which is that this is an absolutely exciting space. I think there is so much potential. And I think there is so much that can be done for the process, right, of how we approach drug development, of course, ultimately for patients. And I think it all comes down to us working together as different players within the life sciences industry, but really coming together around how we approach this and making sure that we find the best way forward that we can. And I know that, as part of Coda and for you as part of ParExcel, that's something that we try and weave into our daily jobs. And so, you know, I really look forward to, and I'm really excited by all of the momentum and the collaboration in this space. It really, truly is extremely exciting. I've really enjoyed this conversation, Michelle. There's still so many topics that we could continue to talk about. I just want to say again, thanks so much for coming and sharing your time and your perspectives and thoughts with us. It's always really great to have open conversation on this topic. I know it's something that excites both you and me. And thank you again for coming on this podcast with us.
1: It's my pleasure, Zoe. Thank you for having me. And uh, thanks
0: for the opportunity to think together. Absolutely. Okay. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Real World Talk. For more episodes and to understand how we can all bring clarity to cancer care using
1: real world data, please visit us at codahealthcare.com. We look forward to having you next time on Real World Talk.